Computing Broadcast a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. So obviously, you know, we, we talked about your work going out of body, exploring the higher, larger uh, reality. Uh, you've come to some pretty startling conclusions that I have to say um, they're unsettling, but they're they're not unfamiliar in some ways, and they they come with a, a you know with a great scientific basis, um, but nonetheless, it's still a little unsettling. How did you come to this idea? Well. I'm not sure what's so unsettling about them. I don't find them unsettling, but I'll... Well, I can give you examples on how they're unsettling. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's funny because this idea that we've lived in a virtual reality is, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot in pop culture. You know, The Matrix was obviously one of the first big movies. But even now, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's like Westworld is, is a great idea. It's not a virtual reality world. That is more of an alternate reality. But a lot of these types of concepts exist in, in the TV show Westworld. But also Black Mirror. Uh, I love this show. But one of the things that is, to me, the things that they do this in a couple different episodes is they... There's this whole idea of AI, artificial intelligence, uh, you know, essentially becoming so good and so quick and so human-like that these artificial intelligent uh, intelligence entities become uh, almost like versions of us. There's one episode where a woman takes basically her entire consciousness and creates a little assistant helper that lives in this box, but it's in a digital world, uh, and a person on the outside basically, you know gets her to become a slave by making her sit and do nothing for hours on end. It, you know, it takes two seconds in the real world, but he can make years go by in the digital world with a click of a button. Uh, to, to think that we are, in fact, those people living inside of that artificial, artificial intelligence world, and we are um, the beings that can be manipulated by this larger digital reality, I think that that's unsettling. It, you don't essentially, you don't have any control over your reality um, you know, or you, or you can, but you also have this other being that can be controlling it like that. Sure. Uh, to me, that's, that's unsettling. Okay. Well, that's unsettling and probably it should be unsettling. <laughs> but, that's my point, well, Thomas Campbell. Yeah. But, but fortunately it's not like that. Okay. That doesn't, that doesn't happen. Okay. That's not part of the reality. Uh, matter of fact, if anything, the reality bends very far in the opposite direction. Free will is almost sacred. You always have free will. There is nothing that can abrogate your free will. When you say, no, I don't want to do that, that's the way it is. Nobody twists your arm. Nobody even tries to give you the hard sell or the soft sell or trick you or anything else. When you say no, it's no. If you say yes, it's yes. You have complete control over what you do and how you do it. So that's kind of the opposite of what you're saying. This being out of control where other things can control you. It's not like that at all. So it's not like a video game so much. So that, that, that would be the, the kind of the comparison. So it's not really like a video game. No one's really controlling you inside of a virtual world. You're saying you have free will, just a member of this virtual it's you, reality. It's you are controlling yourself. 
Okay. See, this is the way it works. So it is like a video game, but it's like a video game where you are the player, your consciousness. When you play a video game, your avatar has no consciousness. You are the avatar's consciousness. Okay, so it's not like you are the evil manipulator of the poor avatar. It's not like that. The avatar is just ones and zeros on a hard drive. It doesn't really exist. It's eye candy for you to look at so that you get some kind of image of, you know, of what you look like and what you're doing and who, who you're interacting with. It gives you that sort of an image feedback that your avatar, your elf in World of Warcraft or your, you know, your lady in Sims or whatever, they aren't conscious. They're just data, information. They don't really exist. But you exist. You are the consciousness. You're the player. If you don't tell your elf to do anything, your elf just stands there and doesn't do anything at all, right? It just stands there. You have to say, elf, stand up, elf, run, elf, fight, elf, right. sit down, you know? Yeah. You have to tell it what to do. Then it does it. But if you don't tell it what to do, it just stands there, wobbles, waiting for your command because it doesn't exist in any reality. It's just eye candy for you. It's an output format for you to look and see what's going on on the map. That's all. So your avatar is just something that's computed. It doesn't actually exist. What exists is you, the player, the consciousness, and you, the player, have free will. You can say, else stand up or else sit down, whatever your free will decides. You see, so don't, if you think of yourself as the avatar, then you see yourself as being controlled by outside forces. But the avatar doesn't actually exist. The avatar isn't a thing. It's just data. It's eye candy. It's not conscious. Your consciousness, you're the one that makes all the choices. That, what's, that is what consciousness does. So there isn't, uh, there isn't something that then comes along and manipulates you as the player. You get to make your choices however you make those choices. And if you don't want to be in this game, if you want to just log off and stop playing World of Warcraft, you can do that. You can log off and you can just say, I don't ever want to log back onto that game again. That's fine. You can do that if you wish. You can log on to no game. You can log on to a different game. All of it is your free will choice. Nobody ever makes you do anything. It's always your choice. And the reason for that is the point of our being, the point of being consciousness is to evolve as consciousness. And we do that by evolving the quality of our consciousness. And that has to happen from the inside out. You see, evolution isn't something that's done to you. It's a, something that you have to do to yourself. It's choices you make enable you to grow up and become something bigger, better, more evolved. So it has to be your choice. If something else made choices for you, then it might be evolving, but you wouldn't. So the whole name of this game is that individuated units of consciousness are here to evolve. They make choices. They have to make their own choices with their own free will or they don't evolve. So the game has to hold free will as sacred. Nobody ever is going to control you or tell you what to do. Now, you tell your avatar what to do. Your avatar does nothing without you, but that's your avatar is not conscious. It's not a being. It's ones and zeros on a hard drive someplace. It's something for you to look at so you can uh, 
better understand what all the players on the game are doing and how you might interact with them. So that's all. So that's the confusion. Now, when Hollywood does something, it does it for an effect to get people's emotions wound up. That's how they make money. If you get very emotional from their film, then uh, you and a lot of other people will give them more and more of your money. Right. So they make them that way with uh, a lot of, uh, you know, cliffhangers and, and pucker factors spread around <laughs> sure. because that's what makes money for them. But that's not really the way it works. So you don't have to worry about these, you know, the, the overlord, uh, you know, uh, taking advantage of you. Right. I am the overlord. I've never heard the word pucker factor. I like that. That's a, that's another, I'm going to write that one down. I like that one. Uh, let me ask you one other question about what you just said. Cause you said you can log off at any time. You can play another game. Uh, how exactly mean like jump off a building? Like what, what is that? What does that mean? Yeah. Exactly. You log out of this game when your avatar dies, you log out of this game at that, at that point when you're, if your avatar just dies of old age, that's when you're logged out because you log in to play a particular character. So like in world of Warcraft, you have an elf and your elf's name's Fred and it's a, you know, a hairy blue elf or something, son, a special thing. And, <laughs> and you, uh, you know, you log on and that's your character, right? And you uh -huh. play that character. So you log on and play that character. Well, that's sort of the way it works here, except there's a bit of a difference. And the difference is that when you log on to play your elf in World of Warcraft, you can always put that elf on pause, you know, and go eat a sandwich or take a bathroom break and then come back and take it off a of pause. And while your elf is paused, it just stands there and doesn't do anything. It just waits for you to come back. Well, obviously, we don't do that. You don't see humans just suddenly stopping wobbling in place, you know, waiting for, a, you know, a player to come back. Well, what happens with us is that your, your individuated unit of consciousness, which is your kind of your source consciousness, it takes a piece of itself. It takes a partition of itself, not its memory, not its intellectual part, just its quality that it has evolved to. In other words, it's all the choices it's made has, has enabled it to evolve to a certain point. And it takes that quality. It makes a partition. That quality without any intellect logs on to an avatar. Okay, This is usually maybe a little pre-birth. As long as that avatar has some sense data, then it can be logged, you know, you can log on to it and get that data stream. So when it has sense data, like it can see the difference between light and dark through its mother's belly, it can, uh, you know, it can hear sounds, it can feel the fluid that it's in, then it's getting sense data and you can log on and you will then log on and get that sense data. And when it's born, you will get that sense data. And it's a totally 100 percent immersive. You don't ever walk off to have a sandwich or a bathroom break. You are all the experience that you've ever had, as far as you know, is the experience you've had with that avatar. So you, as and I call this little thing, a free will awareness unit, it's a, just a chunk off your individuated unit of consciousness. As far as your free will awareness unit knows, it is the avatar because it has no history or intellectual content other than the data stream it's gotten from the sense data of that avatar. So it's entirely 100% immersive experience. That's the big difference between you and your elf, which is not an immersive experience. And that's also why you think you are your avatar, because you don't yet know of anything else. Eventually, once you learn to see bigger pictures, you learn to get around in the non-physical, 
you get to watch people as they die. You can follow along with them, uh, follow the progress of, of uh, you know, their consciousness. Once you've got enough experience, then you, you uh, kind of see a bigger picture and you no longer have the same idea of reality and the world you live in. And how did I get there? I think your question was to see that, that bigger picture. Well, <clears throat> here I am, a physicist, and I want things to be logical. They have to be rational or I can't use them. So I'm working with Bob Monroe, and then the next uh, 35 years after that, I'm working in consciousness. You know, I'm working every, every night. I'm putting in hours just like people put into their jobs, and days and nights for that matter. And uh, I come up with an idea of how it all falls together. And that was when I realized that it's just information. Our reality is information. What is your reality now? Well, you're sitting in a chair, probably in a room someplace, and it has a computer and a video screen, and you're looking at the screen, maybe, but you're listening to me talk. All of that is sense data. If you couldn't see anything, hear anything, feel anything, taste anything, or smell anything, what would your reality be like? It would be zero, right? It would be zilch. Mm -hmm. that's, that's not being here. That's what I call point consciousness. You're just a point of consciousness, a point of awareness. It's what I call the Descartes moment. You know, I, I think, therefore I am, or I am, therefore I think. Right. You just realize that you are a point of consciousness, and that's it. Okay, so your reality is information. All of it's information. When a photon hits your, your uh, eyeball, it goes through the lens, gets focused on a retina. The retina sends an electrical pulse that runs down your optic nerve that then affects you know, neurons and things and patterns of neurons, and that's it. Well, that, that little electrical pulse is just data. It's information. You then take that information and turn it into reality. You look at all those little electrical pulses and you say, oh, okay, I'm in the middle of a baseball game and somebody's on third and somebody's on first and, uh, you know, the heavy hitter's up and you interpret all of that. What's going on just from a bunch of little electrical impulses that are data that are going on in your inside your system. All right. So that's the that's kind of the physical viewpoint. In actuality, what you are is a free will awareness unit that's logged on to a avatar that's playing baseball and you are getting a data stream which is which is a description of all that avatar's sense data and you are then interpreting all that into that reality of the baseball game so that's kind of how it works off so my big aha moment was when i realized that if you just let consciousness be information everything i had i had this puzzle you know like a jigsaw puzzle it's one of those you know one of those 5000 piece jigsaw puzzles that are almost impossible to do and i had chunks of it done i had the chunk in this corner and a chunk in that corner and a chunk in the middle and all these chunks done but i couldn't pull it all together and then when i understood that 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 information that consciousness is just information it's an information system then all the pieces fell together and made one unified whole thing that made sense. So that was the, that was the big thing. And I just do that from a experiential viewpoint. In other words, I have, I have all the data points. So 35 years I've collected, you know, dozens and dozens of data points, things I know are facts. 
Now, you may not know them as facts because they're not your experience, but I've studied them and manipulated them, and I know these things are facts in the world of consciousness, and I know these things are facts in the world that's physical because I'm a physicist and I know the physical facts. I come up with an I, I want to come up with a theory that will explain all the facts, the ones I know in consciousness and the ones I know in the physical world, and the fact that it's information, that it's an information system, and this is interpreted information just does that. It runs a line through every fact on both sides, on the conscious side and on the physical side. And while I'm figuring that out through consciousness and then deriving physics from the consciousness, physicists during those same, that same decade and a half after I published my books that I'm figuring this out, they also are figuring out that the only way they can make good sense out of their experimental data, you know, the results of their experiments, is by realizing that our reality is made of information. So science was doing the same thing on its own parallel path. It did not include consciousness like I did. But right now in physics departments all over the world, I'd say every major university in the world, every physics department has, has probably 20, 25, 30% of the physicists there think that this is a virtual reality. It's probably the biggest idea growing and coming in physics since, you know, before Newton. So that's the only thing that answers the questions, that answers the experiments today in modern physics. If you go, you know, I, I was looking at a, a video, a guy was interviewing some scientists at CERN back when they were looking for the, the Higgs uh, boson. And they were, this guy was interviewing them, a couple of uh, physicists, particle physicists over there. And he was trying, the physicists were trying to explain to him. They said, we no longer look at an electron as a little chunk of mass with a charge. He says, that's the way we thought of it 50 years ago. But that doesn't work. If we have that model, we cannot get the right answers. Our experiments don't, you know, they just don't support that. What they support is that an electron is a point with the attributes of charge and the attribute of mass. Now that we can work with. Well, that's just information. You see, the information as to position and as to properties, just information. So scientists, particularly particle science, quantum mechanics, have come to the conclusion pretty much that this reality of ours is information-based. Well, another way of saying it's information-based is saying that it's calculated. Information comes from someplace, right? And this is mathy stuff. It's calculated. If it's calculated, another way of saying that is that it's a virtual reality. Okay, so that that was going on at the same time I was coming up through this through consciousness. Scientists were coming up through the physics, coming to the same conclusion. When I first wrote published my books in two thousand and three. Me and um, Edward Fredkin, a physicist out of MIT, and then Boston and a few other places, and maybe one other guy, uh, Nick Bostrom out of, from England, thought virtual reality was a, a going idea. It was a really great idea that had a lot of potential. Uh, you know, we were probably the only three in the entire planet that thought that, was a, that VR was a good idea. Today, a decade and a half later, it's everywhere. Like you say, the media is filled with it. Of course, the media gets it wrong because they want to be sensational. 
but they're filled with the concept. Scientists, there's another branch of physics called digital physics, basically grew up around Edward Fredkin. It's an accepted part of physics, just like any other part of physics. And there's, you know, you'll find forums of discussing virtual reality uh, among, you know, high level physicists. You know, these are not physicists that, you know, that barely made it and almost flunked out. These are guys from MIT and from Caltech and from uh, CERN and from, you know, uh, Planck Institute. And these are the, the, the best of the best come around and, and sit down and talk about uh, uh, where we are in our concept of this reality as being a virtual reality. So it's, a, it's an idea whose time has come, and it's only going in the next decade and a half, it's going to triple, quadruple the growth that it had in the last decade and a half because it is better physics. It's the only concept that actually answers the mail in physics. And it turns out it's the only concept that answers the mail in consciousness. Consciousness is fundamental. So it's physics is like that because consciousness is like that, not the other way around. So that's kind of the, the big picture. So it's not this scary virtual reality you see, you know, in the movies. It's, a, it's, a, it's not a supernatural system. It's just a natural system. It's an information system. Now, when I call the, you know, I call it an information system and I call it the, you know, the larger conscious system, these are all metaphors. Calling it an information system is a metaphor because that's the best metaphor I can come up with that gives people the idea that's as close as I can get to explaining what it is. So all of them are metaphors. An individuated unit of consciousness is a metaphor. Uh, free will awareness units, a metaphor. These are all metaphors that explain functions of consciousness. So that's the way models work. Um, this is just a model of reality. Now, models of reality can be very accurate, where the model is just, you know, just the way the reality is. Or a model of reality cannot be very good. You know, it can only model pieces, and some pieces work, and some people don't. Some pieces don't. The, the model is only as good as it's able to produce measurable results. That's how you judge a model. If you can get me measurable results, if it can explain all the facts that are historical, and if it can explain the new ones and the, the paradoxes that you don't understand now, then that's a good model. We don't really talk about models as being facts or as being true. We just talk about it being good models or bad models. That's the nature of physics now. Back in uh, Newton's time, we physicists were more arrogant than thinking that they knew everything. So they called things laws. They were Newton's laws. And these are the laws that determine nature. Well, they found out they weren't. They were approximations. There were other things that are more fundamental than Newton's laws. That's just classical mechanics. Quantum mechanics derives all of classical mechanics, but also does other things. So those laws weren't laws at all. So since Newton got egg on his face by calling, you know, making things laws, basically saying that he had the answer for all time, we're not that arrogant anymore. We just talk about it. we have an answer that seems to work, and it either it works sometimes, some places, or it works everywhere. And right now, physics is stuck with models that work sometimes, some places. They've got relativity that works sometimes, some places best, which is mainly places that you have high velocities, okay, big masses, that sort of thing. And you have quantum mechanics that works in places generally that are very small particles. And that's its range. The two of these don't, don't agree with each other. 
quantum mechanics and, and relativity have fundamental assumptions that the other denies. You see, so we know there's something bigger, and that's what Einstein was looking for: is was the 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 um, theory of everything that would unite both of those. And we also have all these paradoxes that they just we know that's the way they work because the experiments tell us that it works that way, but we have no idea why. They're paradoxes. Well, if you had the big picture, if you had the you know the uh, overall understanding the theory of everything, then you should be able to explain how everything works. And quantum mechanics and relativity should both be subsets that fall out of a larger theory. And that's exactly what happens if your larger theory starts with consciousness. Otherwise, you can't solve the problem. It has to start with what's the bigger, what's at the higher level, what is the more fundamental thing. So you start with consciousness and then relativity falls out, quantum mechanics falls out, and all the paradoxes are easily explained. And you uh, then have a model, okay, that explains everything, but it's still just a model. And I caution people, don't believe that the model of reality is reality. There's a difference. You'll never really see reality. All you can ever do is make models that describe it. That's the nature of our existence because we get data and we have to interpret it. We never see the source of the data. Just we get data, we interpret it. Well, that's a really interesting point right there because, you know, as I listen to what you're saying, it, it, I mean, it's a really interesting – when you look at various religions, like they have models of their own reality. You know, like in Christianity, you live here, you die, you go to heaven. I mean, it's essentially talking about souls for the substitute for the consciousness. So they have a model of reality. Um, reincarnation is ca kind of what you're talking about is a digital version of reincarnation. So in a sense, you know, people think of science, you know, it's like the anti-religion, but in a way it is, a, it is its own religion. And this is a, th a, a theory of how the world works, uh, how reincarnation would work in a digital world in a way. So in a sense, it's almost like a, a religious theory as well, wouldn't well, you say? Well, it, it, no, I wouldn't say it's a religious theory. I would say that it subsumes religion for the most part. In other words, I, I made this theory not because I thought, uh, say, reincarnation was a good idea and I wanted to find a way to support it. I came up with the idea of my reincarnation or what I say, uh, you know, continuing another uh, experience packet because that was logically necessary for the model of consciousness. The model of consciousness couldn't progress, couldn't, uh, couldn't go further without that piece of logic in there. So it's required by the logic of, you know, the, the fundamental model is a logical model. It's not a model where you just put things in it. Okay, this doesn't, I'll just make something up to answer these questions and make something up to answer those questions. That doesn't work. You have to have an underlying beginning spot. And then from there, it's all logical, um, you know, deductive reasoning from the beginning to the end. And everything has to fit into that. So I ended up with experience packets that people call reincarnation because that was a necessary piece of logic for the model to go forward, to work. So it's not that um, it's a religious thing and it's just another way of describing it. It's a logical scientific model and it also has a logical, it has a logical necessity for us to have serial lifetimes, serial experience packets, because otherwise the model breaks down. 
it, it can't work. We can't do what we need to do. The conscious system cannot function if we don't. So that's kind of the way the model is. Now, I was a big, that was one of my uh, kind of surprises in this work. Here I am, a scientist, right? My idea is that religion is for people who aren't too bright. You know, my idea is that religion was for people who um, were frightened and needed some pat on the shoulder to make them feel better about things they didn't understand. And it was for the weak-minded. And, you know, I'm an arrogant physicist, 20-something years old, and I've got all these ideas. I'm basically an atheist and think religion is, is uh, a waste of time and resources. And worse than that, I see it as negative because, you know, religious people want to kill each other, it seems, a lot. So I come from that. But the more I, I found the facts in the world of consciousness, I realized that most of the, of the main religions have a lot of it correct. And I, it kind of made me laugh when I got there because I came from the absolutely opposite attitude but then I started seeing these things that the religions did understand. Now, not the dogma, not the, you know, go to heaven and this, all of that is just dogma. It's stuff people made up because it's a good sales pitch. But the fundamental stuff of the religion, the, the very fundamental basics, most of these turn out to be true things. They become facts in that, in that larger reality. So that was a surprise to me that the uh, religious folks, as long as they didn't get tied up in their dogma and their their uh, rituals and things, they actually understood it long before I did, because a lot of that's true. You know, you take the Buddha 2,400 years ago saying this physical reality is an illusion. Well, that's as close a word as he had to virtual reality at the time was an illusion. So these things have been understood for a long time. Uh, the idea that love is really the core idea. Love is the, is the answer. It's the fundamental thing that we're trying to grow up to become because the consciousness system, that's how it evolves is by growing up, becoming kinder, more caring, uh, more about other, less about self. That is defined logically as how it evolves. It can't evolve any other way. It's not like I put that in because that's a nice, happy, sounding idea that's in there because it's logically necessary. There is no other, there is no other way. So a lot of the religions had that the Buddha said love was the answer. Uh, you know, uh, in Christianity, you've got the, the, the soundbite, uh, God is love. So you have a lot of the same ideas bubbling up again. And it's not because I tried to mimic them. It's because we both end up with the same conclusion coming from vastly different directions. They came from experiential going into the, you know, going into altered states and bringing back this information. And mine basically came from a logical theory of consciousness, which was informed by going back, you know, into altered states and, and, uh, and getting information as well. So essentially, I mean, because that's the point I was making is that there are these fundamental truths that exist and, th you know, they explain it from a different, more spiritual explanation and you're giving it a more digital, hardline, you know, right. explanation. But essentially, it's the exact same a lot thing. Of it is, you know, a lot of it is very similar. and We use different metaphors. But besides right. that, there is another basic difference. Theirs is poetry. Theirs needs to be interpreted. 
whole bunch of smart people can sit around and talk for years trying to decide whether you should interpret it this way or that way, you know, what the Buddha said and what it meant. Well, mine is not poetry. Mine is logic. You start with the logic and it's just deductive logic. It either is logical or it's not. So it's not poetry at all. And because of that, it actually can spit quantum mechanics experiments out the other end because it's a logical thing, not an interpretive poetical thing. So my theory ends up saying, well, if this is a virtual reality, then, you know, this is the way these things should work. And there's an experiment we can do to see if they work that way. Whereas Buddhism and Christianity and the rest of these don't spit quantum mechanics experiments out as a logical result of their theory because they're basically poetry and poetry doesn't, doesn't spit out science. It has to be science that spits out science. So that's the fundamental difference between them. But yes, if you look at the fundamental ethical construct, you'll find that it's the same because these are fundamental truths. And no matter where you start from, you may, you know, there's like a thousand different paths to these truths, but there's only one set of truths. And everybody, no matter where they start from, as they make progress toward understanding these truths, will end up in the same place, more or less. They'll just have different metaphors. Right. Because essentially, I mean, and this goes back to what you were saying before about the rock and people, you know, and, and Robert Monroe not seeing these entities and giving it his own interpretation. Essentially, that's what you've done with these fundamental truths. Uh, and, and, you, and you still have like the same, you know, it, it still comes to the same conclusions of if you think of this as a virtual reality simulation, it's the same questions that you would have with any other religion is who to have a virtual reality simulation. If we're in that, that would imply that there is a higher level of technology that has to exist. There has to be an infrastructure of technology existing and I know you're just using the virtual reality, at least I hope you're just using the virtual reality system as more of a metaphor right. than an actual thing. Right. Um, because what, if you're using it as an actual, an actual um, theory, that would mean that there are literal hard drives someplace and a literal beings above us that have created this technological infrastructure that we then log into um, you know, matrix style yeah. or something in the back right. of our heads that we log into this world. I'm a, so you're not really saying that you're just using it as a metaphor to say, because when you talk about the thing that really struck me is when you talk about like remote viewing or seeing the past and the, in the future, you're going, you're logging into a, a hard drive, so to speak, right. uh, and accessing the information, possible future, right. you know, in a database. Where, how you get like the quantum yeah. idea. Yeah. Like a database okay. where you think like well, quantum futures. And that kind of makes, that makes sense if it's not, um, you know, if you're not really saying we actually live in a virtual reality simulation with, you know, we're still living somewhere else with these big goggles on our heads and everything. Well, no big goggles, but, you know, we, the answer to your question is, is yes and no. So maybe I can make that clearer. And that, and that <laughs> is that, <laughs> please. And that, and that is that, um, okay, we, we, um, we have that this is a virtual reality. Then the question is, comes to you is, well, then, if it's a virtual reality, it's computed. If it's computed, you know, who's computing it? Who's, who's the programmer? Uh, you know, what's the source? Where is it coming and from? what's the equipment? And wh wh what's the computer? Yeah, computing? what's the computer? Now, see, the answer to, to that is that, yes, there is a source. And, yes, it is being computed. But the source is consciousness. Consciousness is an information system. A part of that information system can configure itself as a computer, that, a server, if you like. Part of that, that larger conscious system can configure itself as individuated units of consciousness. In other words, pieces, smaller subsets of itself. 
part of that larger conscious system can configure itself as the operating system, kind of the overall thing that holds it all together, you know, makes the rules and, and, uh, um, you know, it creates a consistency. So it's not all just inconsistent pieces, you know, that have no, have no purpose. So you have all of those things. Yes. So all those are just parts, different ways of looking at this larger consciousness system. It can configure itself in what, in all those things. And each one of those things is a metaphor. The metaphor of the server, it acts like a computer. The metaphor of the individual unit of consciousness, it's just a subset of the source. And the, the source or the, the, the operating system, if you like, that kind of has to keep everything consistent. Okay, that's just another, that's the executive function, if you want. All those are metaphors. And they're metaphors because all those pieces have to exist. Otherwise, you don't have anything that works. You know, you don't have a machine that, that can function. So you have that. And yes, you have this executive part. And this executive part realized that, well, the individual units that were created from itself, you know, there were pieces of itself, just subsets, they have, they're evolving, but they're not evolving very effectively, very efficiently, because they don't have choices that have consequences. They're just chatting with each other and trading information, but there's just not a lot of meat there to get. So without consequences, it tends to be a lot of small talk. It's not very, it's not very life-changing. It doesn't help you grow up. So it needed a virtual reality that was, now it, it accepts just the fact that they're communicating. That is a virtual reality because there's rules. The rules are the communication protocols. That makes it a virtual reality. A virtual reality is any interaction between things that has rules. The rules itself create the virtual reality. World of Warcraft is created by a set of rules that define the game. So anyway, it needed a, a tighter, a virtual reality with more rules such that the consequences would be more life-changing, would help you grow up more. So it decided to, it needed to create another one of those realities. It created the one with the protocols where like a big chat room that was created. So it decides that this virtual reality needs, needs some boning up here so that the things can, the pieces can learn more quickly. So it starts like any virtual reality with a uh, initial conditions and some rules. And then you punch the run button and those initial conditions will change according to the rules. Well, that was that initial conditions is a ball of plasma, high temperature, you know, high pressure. And the rules are basically what we call science. We as scientists dig rules out. We try to dig rules out of the rule set of how this reality works. Well, you know, the digital Big Bang take one probably didn't last very long, probably all collapsed because the rule set wasn't stable enough to create something that lasted a long time. So then they juggled with the rules a little bit. So eh, we'll make gravity a little smaller. We'll make this a little bigger. And then they run it again. And after thousands of tries, they come up with something that's stable enough to create a virtual reality that would evolve things like us so that we would be good avatars for the individuated use of consciousness to log on to as players. So that takes a lot of time. And in physics, that's called the anthropic principle, because in physics, you see, we found that 
there are a set of constants, probably a half dozen constants, that have to be exactly what they are down to the tenth decimal place or the universe would have collapsed on itself a long time ago. In other words, we wouldn't have a stable, a stable uh, um, universe. And they say, well, why is that? It looks like we have all of these numbers right out to, you know, like I say, the eighth, ninth, tenth decimal place, that if you change that tenth decimal place, one digit, the whole thing would have fallen apart. It wouldn't be balanced. It wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't work anymore. So it looks like it was created, all those numbers to those number of decimal places were created just for us, just for a place for humans to be in. That's why it's called the anthropic principle. Well, it's a fact. It's a physics, a physics fact that you've got a whole set of numbers that are each absolutely necessary down to the eighth decimal place, say. And if you change that eighth decimal place in any one of them, the whole thing would, would dissolve. The universe wouldn't be here. So how'd that happen? Well, that's Big Bang take one. Ah, that collapsed. Big Bang take two. Indeed, it did evolve those numbers. Over trial and error, the system evolved a rule set and a set of initial conditions that was stable. And it had to tinker with those numbers over thousands and thousands of trials and error until it got them just right so that they balanced and produced something long term. Well, see, there's another one of those big mysteries solved by this, by this model. So it's not that there's a programmer that programs this virtual reality, is that there is this larger consciousness system, an information system, and it evolved this reality to be what it is. That's why our reality seems so natural. That's why we can look at the historical record in, uh, in uh, biology and see where first you had the, the things in the water, and then you had the fish with, uh, with fins that could get around on land, and then you had the things with legs and feet. And they can see how one thing led to the next, led to the next, led to the next. So we can see how all this evolved because that's what it did do. It evolved in a simulation. Eventually, the simulation gets good enough that, it's, that it has uh, evolved things that have interesting choices and consciousness starts to log on to start making those choices for that avatar before the computer made all the choices. In other words, before every player was an NPC, a non-player character, the computer made the choices for everybody. But then as the thing evolved to the point that others could log on, they did. So that's kind of the overall viewpoint. So yes, it is. There is a source. And that source is the larger consciousness system. And that source is just an information system, a digital information system at that. And that digital information system can configure itself in many ways, like a computer. You know, we have all kinds of digital information systems here that are configured in many ways. You know, and that's the, that's the way it is. So that's the look, but there is a source. Now, interesting thing, I did a little experiment one night when I was, uh, I guess, being a bad boy and that I was uh, going to put some people on the spot. I was in Atlanta. I was at the in the basement area of the Unity Church because that was a good facility in Atlanta. And I happened to have two people there who both had their PhDs in theology. So right off the top of my head, I put them on the spot and I said, you two theologists, tell me, what are the attributes of God? 
And I said, you guys ought to know, right? Theology is your business. I don't want anything about the sectarian. I don't want anything about dogma and any of that. I just want to know what are the attributes of God as you see them. Well, they sat down and they spent five minutes comparing notes and going over things. And eventually, about five minutes later, they came up with a list. And I took every item on their list and showed them that each item on their list was indeed an attribute of the larger consciousness system. So I didn't know that it would map one-to-one -one when I asked them to do it. I was interested to see if there were some things that didn't map, that were outside, that made it different. But they mapped one-to-one -to, -one to the larger consciousness system. But now this larger consciousness system is not um, super, supernatural. It's a natural system. It's just consciousness that's evolved. This is what you get when consciousness evolves. So you start with consciousness. From there, you give the attributes of consciousness and what that means, you know, to communicate, you know, able to modify, you know, change your, change your, your thoughts. And you start with the simplest thing possible, just a one and a zero. And then you let it evolve logically, scientifically. So it only can go places that the logic demands it goes. And what you end up with is this, this larger consciousness system. So that's kind of how it works. So yes, there is a there is a source someplace, and yes, we are chips off that old block of that source, and yes, there part of that source is configured as a computer, and yes, the source did evolve this virtual reality as a entropy reduction trainer for its individuated units of consciousness, just like flight trainers have been evolved to help people learn how to be pilots rather than having them learn on you know, $200 million machines. They need to learn on a computer first because <laughs> crashes on the computer are easily fixed. Crashes in a big airplane kill people and ruin a lot of good property. And besides, how do you run drills for pilots of things like, well, your right engine just blew up. Oh no, your left engine just blew up. Now what are you going to do? You can't take a perfectly good airplane and blow its engines up so these pilots can learn how to respond to things like that. All that's done in simulators. Well, this is a simulator created for consciousness to lower its entropy, to evolve itself more rapidly. And the system did that because the system needed to do that because if the system doesn't evolve, it will de-evolve. That's the nature of things. If you don't put effort into evolving, if you don't put effort into change, then entropy just increases. <clears throat> Second law of thermodynamics. You have, to you have to put energy in in order for entropy to decrease. So that's kind of the bigger picture. If you're getting toward kind of the, the God view and the source and how does all of that come out. So that's uh, probably more than you wanted to know, but uh, <laughs> anyway. Well, it's big picture stuff. Well, here's, so here's what's interesting because you've started a Kickstarter campaign to basically fund experiments to prove this is correct. And what's interesting about that is, is I feel like this is the point at which the ant kind of realize that they're in an ant farm. You know, um, so what are the experiments that you have kind of planned and will that affect, will knowing that you're in the virtual reality system affect being in it? You know, observation affects that. Oh, yes. There, it's, uh, I'm hoping there's going to be a big effect. And the plan is, and of course, what happened, how I come up with these experiments is that I'm then now deriving physics from consciousness, right? So I say, well, if this is 
the way consciousness is, it's this virtual reality. Then, you know, how does, how does the, how does virtual reality explain the double slit experiment? You know, how does it explain in all of the physics experiments? How does it explain these paradoxes? And as I do that, I have to make some assumptions about what, how the, the larger conscious system is going to make choices. There's choices. It's not like every one of these, these things has a, as though there's only one way to get there, like everything else. There's two or three ways that you can get to a particular endpoint. So I have to say, well, I've got some some rules that I'll assume. One is that it'll that the system will use the very efficient programming. It's not going to have sloppy, very inefficient programming. It's got a lot to compute. It needs to do it efficiently. So then I make that one of my rules. Well, if the programming is going to be efficient, then here's the way it would have to work that problem because anything else would be less efficient. So you see, this is me now guessing at how the larger consciousness system is going to do something. Because like I say, it's a digital system. It's very flexible. It can do things in many different ways. So I look at it like that. There's another criteria. Not only does it always have to use the most efficient process to get there, but it can't do anything that would conflict with our history. You can't have things that are you know, the virtual reality to stay a good virtual reality can't have logical conflicts in it. It all has to be smooth. It all has to work together. You can't. So that means time travel is impossible. This is what you basically what you're saying. Time travel, the way Hollywood sees it, is impossible. Time travel, in another sense, is not. You can, in your mind, go into past databases and go back and and see anything that's taken place, any particular thought anybody had, any feeling anybody had at any time in history, and you can go back and you can manipulate that, like a if-then if analysis. Oh, if this hadn't happened, then what would have happened instead? And you can get all of that out. It's all there, and, you, and it's all worked out in terms of probability. So, yes, you can time travel that way, and there's a future probable database, and you can get into that and look at what the probable future is, but it's not a done deal because it's all future is just probability. This is a probabilistic model. It's not a bottoms-up, you know, elementary particle to atom to, you know, molecule to the, the macro world. It's probabilistic, not deterministic. So... So, so you can go forward in time, but only in probability. You can go backward in time and see anything you want to see. But if you make a change back there, it's okay. You can make any changes you want, but it doesn't change anything forward. See, that's Hollywood. That's the butterfly effect. You go back in time and you, you know, you do something and all that changes everything up. It's not like that. That's wrong. But you can go back in time and experience things and do what if analysis, which is even neater than the butterfly effect because it's more useful. So, so in that way, there's time travel, but only through consciousness, not by taking your, your avatar and having your avatar show up in these places unless you get your avatar insinuated into the data stream, into the history thing, and then you can. Then you can be there, you know, you can, you can be there uh, uh, and uh, get into that historical database, you know, now you're Daniel J. Glenn, and you happen to be back with George Washington, you know, in that rowboat going across the Potomac River. And, you know, you can do that. And you'll want to. Maybe I have done but, that. And you'll be one of the soldiers there. You see, one of the soldiers in the, in, in the boat. And you can experience that. 
exactly as you're being there. So in that sense, you can go there, but it's not the same as taking a physical body, putting it back in time into a physical universe because there is no physical body and there is no physical universe. So the way you see the time travel portrayed in Hollywood is not really the way it works because they start from a given materialistic viewpoint and that's not the way the world works. So it doesn't work like Hollywood, but you, you can uh, do somewhat into the future. Now, you know, it just doesn't work. And the thing, the matrix wasn't entirely right either. It also was, had some things about it that just not the way the world works. But anyway, they make good, you know, you know, when you're doing Hollywood, you want a good story that, that excites people. You don't necessarily want to have to be accurate. Of course. So well, that's very true. So that's, that's the way that is. But yes, you, that's one of the things you don't time travel in the way that you think of a physical body going to another physical place in the past that changes stuff that then affects the future. No, not like that. But can you get there and get in the boat with George Washington? You sure can. Well, it sounds, I mean, it sounds really cool. And so these experiments, so you're working on these experiments. So when, when do you think you'll have your first set of data out from this Kickstarter? Campaign? Well, the Kickstarter pain is over. The Kickstarter, Kickstarter only allows a one-month campaign. Can't be any longer than that. You make whatever you can make in a month and you're done. And we made about 236, something like that, $236,000. And that was pretty good. And that will get us on a, on a good start to do some of these experiments. And right now, the phase we're in is kind of outreach to universities and physicists and and uh people who have the wherewithal to do the experiments and trying to find the very best people to do them. First, you have to find somebody willing to do them. You know, physicists like everybody else, you know, have always have things to do. It's not like they all sit around whittling their thumbs hoping somebody will come, right. come to them with an experiment to do, right? I mean, they, right, they have yeah. lives and they're professionals and they're doing things. So you can't just drop in and say, hey, quit what you're doing and do mine. It doesn't work. So we have to find somebody who's at that point where they're ready to take on something else. And they also happen to have the credentials to do the kind of work that we want them to do. So they're not that. So they don't have this huge learning curve to come up to speed with the equipment and so on. So that takes some time and it's going to take us probably six months to sort through all of that till we come up with the biggest bang for the buck that we can get with the highest quality people from the best institution that we can afford and then we'll actually start setting up the experiments. The experiments themselves are not that hard. So my guess is that once we get it going and the money has been transferred and the scientists, you know, put on their lab coats and start to work, we probably are no more than, uh, I don't know, anywhere between three and six months or so from getting them all done. They're not that, they're not that hard to do. So the hardest part is getting started. That's true of any endeavor, to be honest with yeah. you. Just getting started is the hard part. Yeah, getting started is the hard part. So, I mean, the first thing we had to do to get started is raise some money. Because uh, if you think just butting into them and in, into a, a physics group and asking them to drop what they're doing and do yours is, is, is hard to do, you ought to try that doing it with no money. Say, <laughs> right. no, we can't pay you anything, <laughs> but just drop what you're doing and work for us. You know, it right. just doesn't work out so well. So the first thing is get some money. And then the second thing is to get the right people. And then we start the experiments. But I purposely kept these experiments the things that were not too hard to do, not too expensive to do. Um, that was that was kind of one of my requirements. Experiments had to be doable within 
kind of the reach of stuff we have on the shelf now. And uh, well, well, I got to tell you, I'm really excited to see what what comes out of this. Um, I will keep it updated on the website. So whenever you have stuff that you're willing to publish and it goes out, I'm, I'm, I'll include it on the website so people can see it when they click on your name. Um, I'm very excited about this. This is a lot of information, sir. Um, it's a lot to digest, but I think uh, I think you might be onto something here. I don't know if anyone's told you that yet, but I think you might be onto. Well, something. I hope so. And of course, I don't know how these experiments are going to come out. That's the point of an experiment. Like I say, I've made a some some uh, intelligent uh, assumptions and guesses about how the larger conscious system would compute a particular thing, you know, and, and the way they're doing it and why they're doing it. And I look at all the previous quantum mechanics experiments and I, you know, my methodology has to explain them and it does. So I, I you know, that makes me feel good, but it doesn't mean that I necessarily have it right. And the system could just decide to do something that wasn't as efficient as possible just because it would rather have answer B than answer A in this case, you know, and I can't really predict that for sure either. So there's some uncertainty for me going into it. And I'm like everybody else. I am anxious to see how they turn out because they are going to give me some, some fundamental understanding about how the system makes choices to do particular rendering in the virtual reality that I don't know for sure now. So mm -hmm. I'm like everybody else. Can't wait to see how they come out because I'm going to learn something. Now, if they, come, right. if they come out the way I predict, in other words, the way I think they will, then that will even be a happier time. But if they don't come out the way I predict, that's still a happy time because I will learn something. Then my next set of experiments will be more to the point, you see, because I'll learn mm -hmm. something this time. Science generally works that way. If you look at the history of science, it's hardly ever somebody says, oh, I have a big idea and then goes and solves the problem on the first try. You know, that is, right, that's right. not really the history of science. Typically, yeah. science has an idea and then they go try it and that doesn't work. So they change it and they try it differently and that doesn't work. But eventually, three or four iterations, they get something that works and suddenly they're heroes. But it's very, right. it's very seldom that they, you know, just out of the blue sky, have something that is, uh, you know, is right, except in the experimental world anyway. Now, the theoretical world's a little different. But doing experiments uh, is, a, is a thing that you do because you're stuck. And you're not, you don't want to go forward because you know you've made some assumptions and you need some experiments to verify whether the assumptions you made are right or wrong. So that's, that's kind of where I am. So if they work, if they work now, I guess I should tell you the big picture that you asked about. What difference is it going to make? How is this going to change people and things? Here's my hope, and I'll try to make it short. If this works and it, it adds another st very strong piece of evidence that indeed this is a virtual reality, it may be the thing that kind of speeds up this, this migration of scientists toward virtual reality that's been going on for the last decade and a half. So if it does that, if we get to the point where the majority of the scientists say, yep, the science, the experiments, the physics supports that this is a virtual reality. Folks, we're living in a computed virtual reality. If science says that, that will change everything. In our world, scientists are the new high priests. Scientists are the people that tell everybody else what's true and what's not, right? That's the job the high priests used to have in the old days. These days, the scientists are the high priests. So when the high priests say, 
Yea, verily, this is a virtual reality. Now, they won't want to go any further than that because they're materialists and that's just what they have to say because that's what the experiments say and they're good physicists. But it's not going to be lost on everybody else of, well, if this is a virtual reality, who's the programmer? Where did it come from? What's the source? That suddenly takes the high priests opening up the opening up to the rest of the world this concept that we are a subset of something more fundamental, something larger. We, our physical reality, is a subset. We, our, our consciousness, our existence, is, is a subset of something more fundamental. When you open that up, not in the margins, but through the high priests, it will make a huge impact on the population. We have an internet now. There's going to be billions of people who will get this news because this will be very big news and you'll start you know you'll start this this uh you know this food fight with uh you know my god's a better programmer than your god you know kind of thing where where everybody's going to want to own you know the that larger thing whatever it is but if we come through that and see the next logical step which is again just deductive reasoning is that consciousness is the computer. And if you get consciousness in the computer, then there's another logical step. And again, it's this deductive logic. It's like third graders could get from one point to the other, is that love is the answer. So if that works its way, now that may take decades before all of that works itself out. But if we get to that point, then that will be mainstream, not in the margins. We've always had these ideas in the margins but they've never been able to get out of the margins. If we have it in the mainstream, if it runs through the high priests, the physicists, then it will go mainstream. And what do you think would happen in this world if suddenly a large number of our population thought that their purpose here was to grow up, become less self-centered, more, more cooperative, more caring about other people to become love, that that was really the, what it is they're supposed to do and started taking that seriously. It would be a huge change in our culture, in our world, in our corporations, in our governments. Everything would change. So when you asked me a question earlier, well, do you think this would really change anything once people realize that we're in a virtual reality? I think it has the potential to change everything dramatically and in a relatively short period of time. By that, I mean you know, maybe three or four decades, you know, maybe a century. But that's a very short period of time compared to, you know, how things change in in cultures and ideas. But, you know, with the Internet, things change faster. So I'm hoping to get these ideas that have kind of languished in the in the uh, um, in the, the margins for millennia to the mainstream from a scientific viewpoint that is entirely logical and that's not poetry at all. It's not interpretive. It's just the way the world works. It's the best model for describing what we see, the results of our experiments, what we see in this reality. So if that comes about, I think it could change everything in a very dramatic and a very positive way. So that's really, you know, if, if I have a uh, ulterior motive, you know, that's my ulterior motive to, to uh, help this world grow toward becoming love as opposed to being stuck in self-centered greed, all about me, you know, how much can I get, 
What do I have to do to keep it? That kind of a thinking. And I think we have a chance here. The first chance that humanity has ever had to do this when all the pieces come together and make it possible. And this is our first shot. And we may not make it on a first shot, but I think eventually it's inevitable and we will get here anyway because it's just on the path of conscious evolution to go there. Well, I hope you're right. Um, I really do. I mean, I hope that this is that's the path that we're on. And I would really love to see the full circle scientists going to be the anti-religion to then becoming the high priests of the new religion. I think that that would be um, poetic in its own way. Um, so I'm rooting for you. I'm rooting for you. <laughs> Um, so I, I got to tell you this. Thank you. This is a lot for people. Um, this is a lot for people to really wrap their head around. You've given us a lot of information. Uh, I really want to thank you for, for taking so much time out. This has been really incredible. Well, I take the time out because when we get to that place where the food fight starts and the various religions start to claim ownership of, uh, you know, the better programmer, um, when there actually is no programmer, it was all evolved. But in any case, uh, that has a chance to descend back into where we were 300 years ago, you know, with uh, a lot of uh, warring with each other, each group trying to grab the high ground, you know, the be in charge. That would be kind of a disaster. It would go backwards, maybe, uh, you know, who knows, decades, centuries before it goes forward again. But if at that juncture where that takes place and the paradigm starts to change but doesn't have really any solid place to go yet, that's the critical point where if enough people understand the way the world works and see that virtual reality requires a digital information source which has to evolve because it's just a natural system and the only way it can evolve is toward its pieces becoming more like love, and they see that is the way, then the less likely this food fight is going to be very disruptive. There'll just be a lot of people saying, wanting to grab the power, and people will just tell them to sit down and shut up. You know, there's another way, there's <laughs> yeah. another way that, you know, that you are not in the center of that will work just as well, actually work a lot better than what you propose. So let's go that way instead. So I take the time because it's important that enough people have that bigger picture that if we get to that spot, we won't digress and de-evolve for you know, three or four decades first, that we'll be able to find it uh, more quickly rather than more slowly. Well, I, 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 again, I, I hope you're right. Um, but nonetheless, honestly, thank you so much for this, for this time. I really appreciate it. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn Co. production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Now, I know this is a pretty heavy episode, but if you want to learn more about our guests or listen to previous episodes, go to fascinatingnouns.com to check out all of that, as well as following the show on social media. You'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, and YouTube pages all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. You can also find a little form to sign up for the newsletter, which I ensure you is incredible. And that only tells you about 
back background to the fascinating nouns guests, but also the other projects that I'm doing, including my latest podcast, which is fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies, where I take a piece of pop culture fictional technology and explain how to make it in real life with a team of experts, including friend of the show uh, and and physics phenom and certified genius as well, Dr. Michael Denon, as well as others. Um, including the Everlasting Gobstopper, some things we talk about, the T-1000, Frankenstein's Monster. It's a really fun show. You can check that website as well as fgbt.com. And if you like that show and you like Fascinating Nouns, you'll like my other projects. You can find all of them on danieljglenn.com. Check it out, and thank you for listening. End of transmission.